Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Benjamin Shepard. Ben is an assistant professor of human service at New York School of Technology, City University of New York. As a social worker, he worked in AIDS housing settings from San Francisco to Chicago to New York, where he directed the startups for two congregate housing programs for people with HIV-AIDS. He has done organizing work with many groups, including ACT UP, Reclaim the Streets New York, the Clandestine Rebel Clown Army, and the Times Up, Bike Lane Liberation Front, and Garden Working Groups. Combining ethnography with social change activism, his work considers the interplay between theory and practice. His latest books include Play, Creativity, and Social Movements, If I Can't Dance, It's Not My Revolution, and The Beach Beneath the Streets, Contesting New York City's Public Spaces. Benjamin Shepard, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I really wanted to follow up. I love the subtitle of your your book on play, creativity, and social movements, which I guess I would say is our overarching theme today. Right. But the, sub, the subtitle about If I Can't Dance, It's Not My Revolution, and given what's going on in the world right now and in, in so many places, particularly in the Middle East, of revolution and change and transformation, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can sort of speculate from afar about where, where have you seen in the coverage and what you've seen and heard and know about the role of creativity and play as it as it's unfolding in those uh, places in the world right now? Well, I, I, it's a great question. I, I think it's, many people have said a, a, a good protest is always should have a bit of the carnivalesque. Um, and by that, I mean, I don't just mean something silly, but as much as uh, an inversion of power relations in which the the bottom is at the top and the top is at the bottom. That's what I mean, I think, by having an element of the carnival within a social movement. And, But also I think people build power through numbers and collective expression and creative expression in which people are tapping into their own passion, their own desires for something better, their own lusty desire for something for a more just world, a more caring world. And uh, that wanderlust is expressed in many, many, many w- different kinds of expressions, including arts, street protest, music. And, I mean, in Tahrir Square, they had a daycare center in the middle of the street occupations with kids playing. So, But you also had, the, I think, the tragic comic element because you also had – some I think as we heard about with a journalist that was sexually assaulted, some violence. So I think one I don't want to under discuss play without recognizing that the double edge of play, if you study Dionysus, there's the double edge of Dionysus is always violence. So there's a there's a paradoxical quality to play, which does happen in social movements. And I think we have to recognize I mean Bakhtin said the creative force is also a destructive force, and the destructive force is always a creative force. So I think there's a lot of that paradoxical quality to uh, social movements, and that's what's exciting and scary <laughs> at the same time. I mean, I love social movements. I, I think that's the only way change ever happens is if people hit the streets and attempt to reclaim public space on their own terms, and people do that in lots of different kinds of ways, including through play. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, Benjamin, I'm involved with the Catholic workers in the Los Angeles area who, of course, mm-hmm. hit the streets, and um, they're currently uh, in danger of being arrested for feeding uh, people on the streets in L.A. Um, oh, my by goodness. the police force, which is uh, outstanding, don't you think? So, um, uh, I, 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 I love it when the... the 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 the, bureau, the Kafkaesque element of the bureaucracy kicks into gear and exposes its absurd power dynamics, and so there literally people are being arrested for giving away free free food. I think food not bombs that used to happen in San Francisco. I know that in parts of Texas, it's illegal to have your own garage sale. You can have only so many garage sales before you're uh, you're violating state city rules. So. Um, I love to watch that absurd minutia take take its place. But I, I think part of what it speaks to is that the, st- the state occasionally will sug- suggest that uh, if they're not in charge of this fun uh, or of this of, of creative expression, then it can't happen. And I think that's the part that uh, that really is absurd and troubling. I mean, in New York City, we've had from the mid-90s all the way till 2004, we had peaceful critical mass bike rides all over the city where the last weekend of every month, cyclists would get together in Union Square as they do in cities around the world, and a leaderless group of cyclists would get together for a community bike ride. And uh, what I loved about it was that some weeks there were Wall Street investment bankers on bikes, some weeks there were anarchists, and people were all sharing space and playing. A, a, a bicycle ride is sort of a, is a very pure form of play. It's, you, you become a child when you ride a bike. You feel free. You connect with something, free movement that you've had for many, many years in your childhood. And so the police at a certain point said, these are illegal gatherings after 2004 when the Republican convention happened. And they've never ceased and desisted from this view that a group of cyclists is an illegal gathering, although courts have ruled against them on several cases. But um, I think it's I think it's just the state wanted to say we want to step in and be in charge of whatever creative expression you're engaging in, and yet it's incredibly important because for us to have these creative expressions and solutions, because it, right now I don't think we can depend on the state to take care of us. I think if with funding disappearing for certain programs, we have to have more mutual aid solutions. People have to be able to take care of each other, feel inter- interdependent feel like they depend they can look to their neighbor and, they, and their neighbor can look to their to them for creating community together and, and addressing problems together. So my secondary question to that is what kind of a commitment then do bikers or Catholic workers feeding um the people in Skid Row in LA or anyone else who wants to make a a community change, what kind of commitment is necessary to make that kind of seriously playful change through activism? Well, I mean, I think I think that in Herbert Marcuse said, if, if play doesn't, in, in Eros in Civilization, Herbert Marcuse said that if play isn't connected to Again, an organizing campaign, then it's just repressive desublimation. I mean, if it, and I think there's nothing wrong with a little repressive desublimation between friends, but at the same time, I think for us to create change in which play is an ingredient in a campaign, it's useful to conceptualize play as a tool in the tool chest. I mean, I, I, I it's simply, I mean, I, I think about the term play would be the 
I conceptualize it as the joyous part of creating a better world through free expression. It's the sort of mariachi bands. It's the food. It's what brings people together. It's what keeps people from bowling alone. It combats the alienation. But it isn't enough in a street theater campaign, in a, in a, in a campaign just to have play. I think one has to have know what they want. I, you know, I think uh, so. That would be a clear ask. I, I'm involved in the community garden movement in New York. We want more gardens. In the AIDS housing movement, we want more housing and better housing. So here's a simple solution: a syringe exchange program. You want to be able to have syringes accessible to folks. For the AIDS movement, drugs into bodies. You simply you know what you want. Or housing. Housing works, as the group Housing Works says. Um, then you need to have research about what your claim is. I think that's the next step. If you don't do the research to show that your proposal, it's cheaper to house people permanently than it is to have them live in SROs, for example. It's, cle- it's cheaper. It costs about a penny to give a, a clean syringe to someone versus $100,000 if somebody tests HIV positive in New York City. That's a simple cost-benefit analysis, one penny versus $100,000 for somebody testing positive and using all the services. Um, if you don't have research behind your proposal, it's not going to work. If you can't mobilize people, Get them to come to a meeting. If you can't engage in some sort of direct action where you take the solution into your own hands, not wait for, not wait for the state to give permission, but take the solution into your own hands. I mean, I think of the civil rights movement as a great example of this. I mean, instead of waiting for the state to give people permission to eat at the lunch counters at Woolworths, civil rights movement said, we're going to go eat at the lunch counters, and you can stop us as much as we, you would like, but we're going to do this. Um, so direct ac- action, and I would say a peaceful, nonviolent direct action, but still a nonviolent, I mean, a, a direct action is really, really important, and one gains power through direct action. Then I would say media and communication. We have to be able to communicate our ideas in thoughtful and creative ways. I, I always remember during welfare reform in the mid-'90s, um, we had a million people, Patrick Moynihan, et cetera. I was at University of Chicago. There were a million smart people talking about why it wasn't a smart idea what the pro- what the administration was doing, and yet nobody was reading their proposals. <laughs> you know, they would have these big, long policy briefs. Nobody read them. So I think we have to think about how people are going to digest information, and it's one of the great things we have. The tools we have now is YouTube. Two-minute short videos can really communicate a great deal. But so, but the street theater as part of play is also a great way to communicate ideas on the ground through media. Um, then I think we have to have a short-term and a long-term proposal. We have to be able to think about what do we want in the short term and what do we want in the long term. And then I think some play can help sustain the campaign and push it forward and bring it energy and bring it some if, if people don't get their needs met, they'll book. My friend Eric Rofus used to say that. And I think play opens up that space for, for people. But if we don't have those other elements, I don't think the campaign is going to move as fast or move as far as it could. So it doesn't mean it isn't play as a substitute for any of the hard work of organizing campaign. I think it's essential part of that. Um, And I think it adds a huge amount of creativity to a campaign. It brings in culture. It brings in art. It mostly, it brings in the imagination, which is, I think, what we really need. The old solutions aren't always working. So we have to think about new kinds of ways of addressing problems as well as creating community. That was a great... uh summary of so many of the parts and pieces of, of, I think, what you talk about in your book about the intersection of play, creativity, and social change. Great. And when I 
um, was in that session with you a few weeks back, and, and you, I think, made the same point about play not being a substitute for the hard work and sort of reminding people that, you know, create, creative community building is also about the work part of it, but in the process it can be a playful um, endeavor as well. I'm wondering if you can share an example of, of one of the many, many projects that you've been in. Of what, what does this actually look like when, when this happens? Well, I, I think – no, thank you. That's a great question. I mean, I think um, – I'll give you – I mean, one example we we, uh, we engaged in last year um, was uh, a campaign around the community gardens in, in New York City when the city wanted to – over the years, the city's had various rules on community gardens and preserving the gardens, and we always want to have the gardens be permanent. And the city will always say, we, we'd like to, we like the community gardens, but nothing is permanent. So that leaves the door open for um, developers to move in. And in New York City, real estate is kind of like oil in Texas. It, it, it drives politics. So, um, But we, we thought a great way to address this issue was to – to address the, the the precarious state of the community gardens was to go on a community garden bike ride where we would dress like Paul Revere, wear Paul Revere hats, put Paul Revere horse heads on our cyclists on our bicycles, and ride through the city, screaming, you know, the, the bulldozers are coming, and asking for the city to make the gardens permanent. And we had embedded reporters from several newspapers with us, as well as our own videographers, to help use to communicate that we were doing this to a larger public. I mean, in some ways, social protest becomes the uh, the theater and the performance that will go into, uh, that one will film and then, and then send the video out into the world. But so there was a great deal of performance and play and simply getting this message out. Um, but the other part of this message, so we rode our bikes through the Lower East Side Community Gardens all the way up to the mayor's house in on um, 72nd Street in uh, New York City, and uh, and then we rode, I think it's 72nd, 77, anyway. Um, but as part of this campaign, one of the things that we tried to do a great deal was to use public space. The best public spaces are well-used public spaces, White used to say. So I think, so what we did was we had a lot of garden barbecues and, and events in community gardens, which helped bring... Not, which helped bring in the play element. We Every single meeting we would have, we would have prop-making sessions and sign-making sessions. So we would maybe have an hour of strategy and talk about press communications strategy. And then you can I can write a press release at home. I can draft that on the computer with my friends. But when, I had a, when we had a meeting, we'd spend about four, three or four hours together with and people would bring paints and supplies and we would make signs in the back so we would have maybe an hour of meeting time an hour and a half maybe and then the rest of the meeting would be painting and um and then or we would do this in a community garden where we would literally be bringing food that people had gotten out of they'd gone dumpster diving so you can actually the city throws away a lot of food that are that's not ready to be thrown away and so we didn't pay a penny for a lot of this food we would have at our community garden barbecue days. And we'd be eating, having kids available, because a lot of what's fun about a community garden, kids can come. And people from all over the community sharing something, either their, their, art, their creativity, their art skills, their dumpster diving skills, their, food, their, their barbecuing skills. And I think 
so 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 we were playing while we were organizing as well as creating the community we wanted in the long term, a vibrant community with green space that's open and accessible to everybody. The other part I think about play that's so important that we have to emphasize is that it challenges positivist planning notion that uh, says that organizing is all about mobilizing resources and a clear calculation of costs and benefits. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be a cost-benefit analysis. I just talked about that as part of our campaign, but it's we also have different kinds of skills we bring beyond statistical analysis. And I think one of the things that play brings in is that it allows us to highlight different kinds of skills that people bring to a movement. It, so it highlights strengths. And I think to use what you have, I think that's really, really important. I mean, um, ACT UP used to have talent shows for the members of the group in the middle of the AIDS carnage before there was even treatment. And so people were... They, they really had a view that it's better to laugh than cry in activism because if you cry, you wouldn't leave your apartment at a certain point. But they would do a talent show, for example, where Michelangelo Signorelli would, could show everybody that he could actually take a whole banana into his throat without having tooth marks, um, which is a, a funny little moment. Or uh, another thing, let's see, um, my friend Kate used to talk about how she'd go to a demonstration of ours and there'd be somebody who she maybe didn't feel like she connected with, and this person might show up with uh, the most cookies. You know, they might have brought cookies to the demonstration, or they might be the one singing the loudest. So everybody's got strengths in organizing. It's just with play, with a play strategy, you highlight and incorporate those strengths, I think, in ways that certain other uh, organizing doesn't emphasize. So I think that's really important, another important part of play. Does that answer your question? Uh-huh. Great. <laughs> well, uh, Ben, it's, it's International Mud Pie Day today. I don't know if you know that. But, no, I didn't, um, but it sounds lovely. Every day is Mud Pie Day in Brooklyn. So. I, well, here too. But, and I'm definitely going to get out there and uh, get messy and put some pictures out with me all full of uh, mud all over me but and with some other people hopefully so in our community here. But I was thinking, gosh, what a great time with your community gardens and digging in the dirt and um, – and I'm a union therapist, so we, we think about, you know, prima materia and working from the dirt out. And I wondered mm-hmm. um, from all of that, and because I'm a parent and a grandparent, it, mm-hmm. and you're a dad, I wondered how mm-hmm. being a dad has influenced your work. Um, well, and I think like that, to see I think going that, forward. No, 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 no. I didn't mean to take you off. And I, I think it's a, it's an exciting question, and I, I think that I'll, I'll address a little part of uh, – the clinical part as well as the dad part. I think um, the clinical part of play is that in the history of psychoanalysis, um, Winnicott and Freud addressed uh, addressed play a great deal. And they, they looked at it and they recognized, I mean, even Freud recognized that not everybody can sublimate their desires into work. There have to be other kinds of outlets. And I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, I also, just speaking about mud, I think in, in uh, the Ratman case study, he writes a great deal about the Ratman digging through the mud in the trenches in World War, World War I. So anyway, there's a great – I think about mud and psychoanalysis, I think of working through a lot. And I think there is actually something with play that's really important in that you're actually not just using your heads, you're using your heart. And when I work with folks, um, I've, I've, in all my housing programs we started, we always had gardens. And some of the folks I was working with were going through different kinds of recovery from trauma or chemical de- dependency. 
And so for them to – some people aren't just chit-chat people. You know, Some people communicate mm-hmm. through different things. And so planting a flower in a garden is, is, or any kind of a plant can be an image of regeneration that's really, really powerful. And I think that's something that's important that play brings out is that it acknowledges our hands and our heart as well as our head. Um, I think in terms of children, one of the things that my kids always – taught me with play. I mean, I mentioned, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, in the acknowledgement to play creativity and social movements, my uh, daughter Dodie the other day said to me, you know, Dad, to, 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 you know, to really have some fun, you've got to break some rules every once in a while. So I think uh, <laughs> play, play is about transgressing boundaries, but it's also about exploring boundaries. I mean, and I think that's what is really, the kids remind me. I mean, when when you're around a child and the child is exploring, I guess, the not me function. What's me versus what isn't me? It's it's utterly serious. I mean, um, but it's not real. They're looking at they're looking at the world and manipulating. Oh, hi, this 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 table. That's not me. If I hit my head on that, that's not me. If I bite my hand, that's me. So it's an exploration of the world. The kids also have taught me that can't romanticize of all this. There can be a degree of violence to play <laughs> if you watch kids playing together. That can also be part of it. So um, I just think the kids have op- helped me open up the door to seeing what's authentic about their expression, their imaginary expression. I think that's the thing. That's the space that we have to honor. And I, and I think I think that we, we talk so much about children playing. One of the things that I think we have to remember is adults need to have some sort of creative expression within their work week. Otherwise... I mean, if that play, playful expression gets, you know, squished out by management and work and, you know, rational calculation of time and resources and tailorism, that creative element, I think it disappears as well. And I think if you – I work in different kinds of human services organizations, and I do see certain organizations don't feel like there's much room for play. And I don't think they're frankly doing a very good job in some of the circles at addressing the human needs that are out there. So – um, we have to keep on going back to that point where we can say, is are we really, are we, can we engage in inductive thinking? Can we really think, look, think about this in another kind of a way? Um, are we really doing what we're saying we're doing? So play opens up a lot of those kinds of spaces, at least for me. Thank you. Your new book that just came out this month called The Beach Beneath the Streets is talking about public spaces and the role of play in public spaces and also how we exclude and control Mm -hmm. the community through those spaces. And you sort of touched on this a little earlier. I'm wondering if you can sort of pick up a little bit more on the the public space aspect of play and creative community building. Well, I think um, I'll give you an example. uh, I, I, I think that every city goes through this experience. We go through an experience of, um, expression, enjoying, being out in the city and learning to explore things, and then repression. When does the exploration end, and when does the state say you're not allowed to do certain things? I mean, I, I, I hang out with some friends in marching bands, and we were in the middle of Prospect Park the other day, a huge park in, in Brooklyn, uh, like Central Park in Manhattan, and um, a gentleman was playing his uh, tuba, and he was told, and the police eventually walked up and said, you know, you're not allowed to play music in the park. So... <laughs> Oh, like people play music all the time. This wasn't amplified sound. This was a tuba. So um, the state will step in and let it you know quickly when you're being too creative. I think that when 
sees that a great deal of the time. But um, this Friday night, we actually had our 18th annual drag march before the uh, Pride weekend. And for 18 years since the 25th anniversary of Stonewall in 1994, activists have been wanting to celebrate the role of drag in the gay liberation movement because the gender insubordinate people, the street youth, started the riot in 1969, June of 69, and certain people wanted to walk away from some of that history as sort of the assimilationists in the movement. But so we, instead of the pride parade where everyone, you know, there's Budweiser and corporate sponsors for the parade, the drag march is an unpermitted parade, which takes place in the East Village of Manhattan and middle members of the Radical Fairies and the Radical Homosexual Agenda and the Church Ladies for Choice, a group I work with, Time's up. We all show up in, you know, in drag. However, one makes it. Women wearing mustaches and tuxedos, and uh, men wearing fabulous dresses, and the radical fairies with sprinkles and no shirts on, and drums. And it's a wonderful celebration of difference and being freaky and enjoying your life in the city. It's it's a lovely event. And every year, <laughs> at some point in the parade, the police try and say, "You can't do this." I mean, and last this year, literally on Friday night. At 9.30, as we were playing drums and dancing and playing Express Yourself by Madonna um, and, and uh, Dancing Queen right in front of the Stonewall Bar on the 45th anniversary of Stonewall, um, the police said, you've got to move out. You can't do this. You can't take a, occupy the street. And they arrested one person. The person unarrested himself, running away. And uh, a, a gentleman in a wedding dress said to the police, you know, they're – the state in Albany is about to vote on gay marriage right now. This is our night. You can't take us away. Take us away. Take this away from us. You can't take away our right to be on the street. And yet the police tried to, and eventually they backed off. So there we go. In one night, we had a bit of the paradox. This liberatory potential of space, democracy, difference. You know, different kinds of people in New York. People of all races, genders, sexualities, enjoying dancing together. And you know, I mean, and, and then. Then the police saying you can't do this, and um, so I think you've got there's this expression repression is a constant part of um, life in New York City. It's a it's a dialectic that it, that goes unresolved. Um, later on in the weekend, the police harassed the, the drag the Dyke March, which is 19 years in running because it was an unpermitted parade. The night that the, after the marriage vote, they raided a, the the Eagle, a gay bar in the West Village. So I mean, it, sorry, in in Chelsea. So you know, this this expression, repression, never really quite plays, finishes playing itself out in the city. But I think that the dialectic is what's interesting. I think it's just to recognize it won't be resolved, that, this, that, that democracy plays itself out through this conflict between people wanting to express themselves in the state, stop trying to slow this down, and hopefully we can work it out. And I think that's the question is, is, is can the dialogue be maintained or will there be a level of repression? And I think in certain movements, you see that. You see that in Libya. You, know, you see that in the convention protests around in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul or the Republican convention in 2004 when 1,800 people were arrested in New York City. Um, so that's the thing I worry about with certain social movements right now is when people want to hit the streets and express themselves, they are being there's a great deal of even preemptive arrest. Hearing people are planning to to do a protest, people get arrested. In the Bush administration, people would get arrested for wearing a T-shirt that said "No Bush." So, that, and, and so we still have a First Amendment in this country, and I think it's important for us to make sure, to use it. 
and that's an important part of play is it's, it's constitutionally protected First Amendment behavior. So let's do it. Let's do more of it, especially around July 4th. Right. Ben, you're a prolific writer, and uh, you also mentioned uh, YouTube and, and use of uh, social media in activism. So I wonder if you'd have a little bit of uh, information to share with others about how to enter into activism through social media or writing. Well, I would say that I would say the uh, the thing that's most exciting about activism is the DIY spirit, do-it-yourself spirit. I mean, in the same way that people used to make fanzines, and now they make websites. But I think that we have to remember that we can create our own democracy. With it, we can create our own media, and that's really, really, really important. I, I think you can create your own web your own your own um, blog, you can promote it with your own Facebook site, you can Twitter about things that you care about to your friends, and you can make your own videos. Act Up used to film its protests when the corporate media wouldn't film them. They'd make a video, then they'd run it up to Channel 5. They'd call up and say, hey, we have a video of a demonstration that just happened. Do you want it? And sometimes they'd say yes. The indie media movement, the indie media movement since Seattle uh, has created the Indie Media Center where activists can actually make create their own news about their own protests and uh their alternative proposals. So that's important. I think it's really important that we use media to communicate not only what we're against but what we're for. Well Ben, we are out of time. But thank you very much for joining us on Creativity and Play. And thank you guys and I, I just want to thank you guys for continuing to promote this really, really, really important idea. We we have so many challenges in this world, so I think we need more people thinking about ways to uh create a better world, a more joyous world with creativity. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Benjamin Shepard is assistant professor at New York School of Technology and author of Play, Creativity, and Social Movements. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dalbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>